I have entitled the message, Why Are You Seeking Jesus? This passage is one that God used in my life for a major turning point, a major turning point. I had another title, which I thought would be good as well. I can't get no satisfaction. (laughs) But I thought if I gave that title to you, that song would start going through your head and be there for the rest of the service. And now I've messed you all up. Anyway, these people that are following Jesus around certainly fall into the category of those who can't get no satisfaction. And they try and they try and they try. But they can get no. Anyway. <laughs> Please, you make me feel like Mick Jagger. I know it's my fault. But I want to tell you that even up front, they leave the end of this long discourse and they walk away without satisfaction and they walk away without a personal relationship with Jesus because he exposes to them not only the motivation of their hearts but the cost of following him and once they understand completely what he is all about they leave and I have seen so many people do that over the years endless people it is such a heartbreak to me as a pastor I watch it happen over and over and over so this is a very important passage to me because God used it to set me free and to get me on the right track as a Christian and a believer Understanding what Jesus is really all about and because I see it happen over and over to people and they don't get free and they leave and they walk away without Jesus. And that is a tragedy and God wants us to respond, I think, to the blessed truth that is here so we can walk away from here this time and all the following times and working through this passage freer and more blessed than before. And that those that don't yet have a relationship with Christ but are following Him would have their eyes open, their motivation of their heart exposed to them, and would be set free to follow Jesus for the right reasons and find the satisfaction that can be found only in Him. See, I think there's a tendency, a great tendency in the human heart to misunderstand Jesus Christ. I know that John felt that way. All through his gospel, he repeatedly deals with that. He chooses incidences. He chooses miracles and different things, different sermons that Jesus gave to show this tendency on the human heart to misunderstand Jesus. He does it because his main objective in writing is that in the end, everyone reading would come to know in a personal way that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who alone has life and salvation, forgiveness of sins. So he wants the reader to see that so the reader can identify in their own heart and mind the tendency and avoid it and embrace Christ in a whole way for all of the right reasons. So as he goes along, one of the things he does in this passage is he shows Jesus using an illustration from something very common in life that they would all understand, but still they didn't understand it. It's the illustration of bread, an ordinary physical thing in life. So what Jesus did is he seized the opportunity with a hungry crowd to teach them one of the greatest lessons they would ever hear in life from bread. And as simple as that seemed, I'm sure to him, they made it very complex because of the attitude and the motives of their hearts. 
Bread is interesting in the Bible. You find it all over the place in the Old Testament. If you look in the Old Testament, you'll find it as many as 239 times. That's one assessment of it. You find it as many as 79 times in the New Testament. If you look at all the words that point to bread, that aren't really translated bread, but in the Hebrew or the Greek point to bread, the number is even higher than that. So that in the end you find that bread is just mentioned all over the Bible. The frequency of the mention of bread points to the idea that it was bread, not meat, not vegetables, that was the mainstay of life. In fact, I did some reading on it today and they have found over the years that as many as two-thirds of the people that live in this area of the world have as their main diet bread, then whatever else they could add into it. And that would, of course, exclude the wealthier people, the more successful people. But in Jesus' time, he himself said, the poor you have always with you. And the poor basically did anything they could get for a piece of bread just to live. So when these people are coming after Jesus for bread, it is a genuine, honest-to-goodness need in their life. But the greatness and the depth of their need as poor people eclipses the greatness of Jesus Christ and the greater need that they have that they don't realize that is far bigger than any physical need. These are some of the dynamics that are going on here. Let's read through the passage from verses 22 down to verse 33. On the following day, this would be after feeding the 5,000 and Jesus sending the disciples away in the one boat that was there, and then himself going up into the mountain to pray and dismissing the multitudes, on the following day, after he had walked on the water in the middle of the night, you wonder when Jesus ever slept. He's with the multitudes all day feeding the 5,000. He sends the disciples away. They're rowing well into the night. He's up on the side of the hill praying, watching them in the moonlight because he knew right where they were. So he's interceding and praying. He's interceding for the multitude many of whom he knows will shout for his death in the end when it's all said and done. Then he's walking on the water in the middle of the night. Then the boat is immediately at land. Then the next day there's a multitude comes over around and there he is. And yet you find them up a great while before day praying. I tend to think Jesus didn't sleep as much as he could have. There was so much to be done. I tend to think he also found a great strength in prayer that many of us know nothing about. And he becomes the greatest example of finding our strength in our fellowship with God to be found anywhere in the Bible. So here he is on the following day. When the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered was the only one that had been there. And that Jesus, they knew, had not gotten into that boat with his disciples, but that they had gone away with the only boat without him alone. However, other boats came, that would be in the morning, from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. All of that is to say this, when the people saw in verse 24 that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not 
because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, I'll tell you what, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, this is an index to their hearts, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? As if they hadn't already seen enough signs. Listen, if you're basing your faith on signs and wonders and miracles, then you must realize that those things do not generate saving faith. And that if that's what your faith is sustained by, you're always going to need another miracle, another proof. And that is the problem with all the excess of the signs and wonders movement around us in the church today. You always need another lightning bolt, another movement, another wave of God's Spirit. They wanted another sign. They said, what sign then will you show us so that we can believe? What work will you do? to help us. Verse 31, Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them manna from heaven to eat. Get the connection back to the day before. Bread, miracle bread from heaven. And in verse 32, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. My father gave you that, really through Moses, but my father now gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And all of that is springing off of a day of miracle bread the day before when he fed the 5,000 from a boy's lunch. That would seem simple enough, but they completely missed it. So Jesus, in this section, has a very clear message for the crowd in front of him. And it kind of runs on a similar vein for the rest of the long message he gives. But I just want to look at this part. He has a very clear message. He says to them this, you were seeking me for the wrong reasons. Then he says to them this, effectively, you are living life on the lowest level. Then he says to them effectively, and now you are hearing how to change all of that. And that's what I want to focus on. He says to them, you are seeking me for the wrong reasons. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? It's amazing to me that Jesus does not answer them at all. Not with their question anyway, not in regards to their question. He looks right past their question down into their heart. It's almost like he's exasperated with their dullness, their blindness, their deafness. It's almost like he's calculating, I've got three years to minister publicly. I've preached. I've worked mighty signs and deeds. These people are wearying me with their games. I don't have time to answer this question. I need to answer the real need of their heart. When did you come here, Rabbi? Let me tell you what you really need. You don't need an answer to that. You need an answer to this. You seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. Look at the insight Jesus has into the human heart. At any given time, as he looks at you, he knows exactly what's in your heart. At any given time, as he looks into the church, as he looks among us today, he knows 
why every person is here. He knows the number of hairs on every head. He knows why we are all here. He knows the motivation of why you are in church tonight. He says to these people, you are seeking me for the wrong reasons. You know, one of the things I've seen about people that seek Jesus for the wrong reasons is they ask the wrong questions. That would only be natural because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I find that people that seek Jesus for the wrong reasons are always asking the wrong questions. They do that here. They said in verse 25, Rabbi, when did you get here? When did you get here? Now, I don't know if you noticed that in reading over it, but it would seem to me the question certainly would not be when. The question would be how. Now look, there was only one boat. Your disciples took it. We were there. We, you stood alone waving to them. You turned around to us and you waved to us and said, Goodbye. <laughs> you go too. So we left. And I can just imagine they're thinking, the disciples have been sent away, but he stayed. He says, Now go. I fed you. Your bellies are full. Go. Night is here. They probably thought to themselves, the disciples are gone, but he's still here, so fine. There's no other boats. When morning comes, he'll still be here. And we still want to make him king. But no rush now. The day is gone. He has no way to get out of here. He'll be here in the morning. So, when is an index back to their heart, you see? Why they left when he sent them away. As well as the frustration when the morning came. See, the morning came. And this guy who had fed them free food, fed them all until their bellies were filled. They were glutted, actually, the Greek says. They woke up, they thought he would be there. They were going to go on to make him king. Instead, they found that he was gone. They could not figure out how he left. So they, they made this great effort. I mean, you have to admire their effort to track him down. These people are seeking Jesus. And they're seeking Jesus with a great effort, overcoming all kinds of obstacles to get near to him. And so when they find him, they say, when did you come here? And that is to say this, we are so frustrated that you blew our plan. We were anticipating getting more from you of what we had already gotten. We wanted to make you the king. We would get more from you in that way. And you blew our whole plan. When did you come here? It's an uptight question. You should be back on the beach on the other side where we wanted you this morning because we had more plans for you. We're mad you're over here. Now what's going on with you? So they close in on him. Now later we see in the passage, and we read over it, when they said to Jesus, well, what are you going to do to help us believe? Again, the wrong question. When did you come here? And then to the man who says, this is the work that you believe. Well, what are you going to do to help us believe? You know what they wanted him to do? They wanted him to give them manna like Moses in the wilderness. How long did Moses work with God to give the people manna in the wilderness? How long? Anybody know? Forty years. Forty years. So when they say, now what are you going to do to help us believe? You know what Moses did to help us believe? Moses provided free bread for 40 years. Now, you gave us one meal. 
Now, if you're so big and you're so hot and you're so powerful, what are you going to do? The implication is, you will give us at least 40 years and we're expecting more. So we're ready. You want us to believe? Fine, we'll believe. But we want you to do better than Moses. And then, if you expect us to believe you being better than Moses, then you prove it, we will. You see the manipulation? Always asking the wrong questions. Why? Because they were seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons. This is something that when I saw this for the first time in my Christian life, I was lukewarm. I was living my life for myself completely. At that point, I was following Jesus for basically what I could get out of it. And the Lord opened my eyes and it, it completely changed my whole life because I saw I couldn't live like this anymore. You see, they were following him simply for what they could get. And they saw him as a fixer. In other words, here are these desperately poor people. Just to find a next meal is a difficult thing for them. So when they get glutted at his hand through his power, well, then they immediately begin to follow him as the answer to their poverty. Doesn't the devil love to use that one? That one is still being used today. Follow Jesus and he will make you wealthy. Follow Jesus and you will know prosperity. You know, the whole prosperity doctrine is based on this idea. Their need was genuine. It was deep. They were poor. But they began to follow Jesus as the bread man. And that is why he rebukes them here. But you see, that whole thing of following Jesus for what you can get still happens like this. Some single people follow Jesus to get a wife. Single men. Some single women follow Jesus to get a husband. I've seen it endlessly. And what happens is that if you have a singles group in your church that is not geared toward endless activities and finding a mate, if you have a singles ministry that's geared toward finding Christ while single, generally the finding Christ while single ministry won't be that popular. And not many people will go to it. What the Finding Christ While Single ministry will do is have a few attenders because many single people, even Christian, sometimes feel that their need on a physical level to have a mate, uh, even an emotional level, which we would include in the physical, is greater than finding Jesus while single. So what happens is that the churches that have the the biggest singles group, often attended by people that don't even go to that church, are the ones that gear the whole thing toward entertainment and fun and they keep it as on as low a spiritual level as possible so there's not too much Bible verses being quoted because that would hinder you from finding the mate of your dreams. And what happens then is that you have all these people, they come to this church because this great thing is happening there with the singles. As a result... Because they lower the standard way down to increase the odds way up of finding the spouse of your dreams. Guess who the spouse of your dreams turns out to be? Horror of horrors. Nightmare of nightmares. Someone who was only following Jesus for the bread. Someone who was only tending the singles meeting and occasionally church on Sunday because they wanted a spouse. What happens when you marry that person? You think they want to go to church? Absolutely not. And because they've gotten what they wanted. You think, how many people do you know that got married to someone 
who was all Christian until they got what they wanted from Jesus, quote, which was a spouse. And as soon as they're married, it seems to be the most mysterious thing. One of them backslides right away and never goes back to church. It's like they change overnight. And then you get all these prayers. Pray for my husband. Pray for my wife. They're backslidden. Oh, they're backslidden. And at what point in time did they backslide? Almost the day after the wedding. (laughs) My answer to that is always the same. I fear that you may have married a person who followed Jesus for the stuff, not for him. They wanted a spouse. And when they got their spouse, they had all they wanted from Jesus. I fear your spouse needs to be converted. I don't think they're backslidden. I think they got what they wanted and they never really wanted Jesus. They just wanted a spouse. That is a big snare in the body of Christ. It's a big heartbreaker too, especially if you don't understand this whole idea that people follow Jesus for the bread. And there are those that that follow Jesus because they're lonely in life and they can meet friends at church. So they make, meet a lot of friends. They make a lot of relationships. Now you're, you're spending time with them because you're friends. But the next thing you know, you find that now that they have a lot of friends, they're not so inclined to come to church because you do things outside of church. Now this friend of yours that you've met at church that seems so zealous, you have to always be nagging at to come to church. Same thing. Then there are those that follow Jesus because he's the marriage fixer. Not only is he the matchmaker in the eyes of some, not only is he the fixer of lonely hearts, but he is the fixer of marriages. The marriage is suddenly on the rocks. It's gone bad. So one of them shows up in church. You say, why are you here? And they start crying right in front of you, in front of everyone. They don't care. And they say, because they're hurting so bad. And they they say, I'll tell you why I'm here. I need something. Oh. You're here because you need something. Listen, there's something in the market. You can go to the mall. they got something there. Why are you here? I don't know. I thought a little religion would help at a time like this in my life. Oh. And then you see them in that. Now their spouse is coming. So now the one who started coming originally who needed something is even more zealous because now the spouse is coming. And the next thing you know, things go okay, and they're in a positive environment on church, and people believe in God, and they sing to Him and everything, and they, they meet in small groups, and there's all this, this environment which by itself is healing, completely apart from God. AA works off that dynamic, you know? God as you perceive Him to be. It doesn't even matter who He really is in the end, you know? It could be an empty bottle, it'd be all right, you know, especially for a drunk. You know, your higher power as you conceive him to be, but you're with a group, you have support. People see Jesus as the marriage fixer, as the lonely hearts fixer, as all this fixer, and thus in the church today there's all this marketing based on felt need. Getting people into church based on their own felt need. Jesus wants to meet your felt needs. So people are cultivated into a, quote, relationship with Jesus that's following Him for the stuff. doesn't matter what your need is, Jesus wants to meet it. You come to Him, He will meet your need. Sounds good, doesn't it? And you know, one of the reasons that it sounds good is because He really does care about those needs. He really does. He cares about your lonely heart. He cares about your ungodly spouse. 
He cares about the sham conversion that ended at the wedding day. He cares about all these things. But you see, what he cares about more than any of those things is the deep need of your soul to forgive you of your sins. The deep need of your soul to have a relationship with God. He cares about your forgiveness. He cares about your fellowship with God. He cares about your fulfillment, really in that order. And if you're following him for the wrong reasons, it ends up hardening your heart to following him for the right reason. You understand? So what he seeks to do is he'll use anything. Jesus will use anything to draw you in. He used an anchovy pizza in a boy's lunch on the hillside with the intention of saving everybody in that crowd, upwards to 30,000 people in that crowd. But they so allowed that need to, to blind them to everything else that they only really wanted to follow Jesus for more bread. And he's trying to pull them out of that here. But in the end, with a flawless sermon, it doesn't work. And they leave. And the only ones who are left are his disciples, the small group of true disciples. I do pray to God that if you're following Jesus for the wrong reasons, that he will open your eyes today and show you you need Christ because you need forgiveness. You need Christ because you need eternal life. You need Christ because there's an empty void inside. And if he doesn't fill that empty void, into that empty void will be drawn all the sin and carnality and materialism and immorality and everything that this world is pushing on you. He is your only hope. You've got to follow him for the right reasons. And those are the right reasons. He tries to draw these people out of it. And you know the thing I see is that if you want to know what the, the right question would have been, it would have not been, when did you come over here? It would have been, how did you come over here? Well, you know, I think they would have gotten a good answer to that. Well, you see, I went up on the hillside and I prayed. Remember when I sent all you guys away? You saw me, that's where I went. I went and prayed. I sent the other guys out on the boat. And then you remember, the storm came up. Yeah, we remember the storm. And uh, there I was. And about in the middle of the night, the fourth watch of the night, uh, I went out on the water walking to them. And, and so I walked out on the lake and, you know, went to the boat and met up with them. And it was a grand lesson. And, you know, he could have gone into the whole thing and they could have got in on everything he was seeking to teach his inner circle that night. And said so they missed all of that. If they would have just said, how did you do that? If they would have come with that question, it would have showed that they understand that we have a lot more to learn about Jesus. A lot more. When they woke up in the morning and saw him gone, I was looking at that and I thought, you know, my first reaction would have been, he's somewhere around here and somehow he got across that lake. And my initial reaction would have been, you know what? There's a lot more to Jesus that I have to learn. I have only just begun to learn about him. I can't wait to get with him and find out how he did that. I want to know the details. I want to know what it was for, what the plan was. Do you understand that there's a lot more for us to learn in Christ about Him? If you had cornered one of these people, or, or several of them, that morning, when they're in Capernaum there by the synagogue asking Jesus, when did you come over here? If you would have said, hold it, I'm new to all this. Now, I see all of you around Him. What do you know about Him anyway? Can't you see one of them old veterans from the feeding of the 5,000? Oh, what do I know about Him? Sit down, let me tell you. I have followed him around. 
I have seen blind eyes open. What do I know about him? I've seen lame men get up and walk. What do I know about him? Even now I'm still a little full from that big meal yesterday. What do I know about him? I know everything about him. I know about his power. I know how he has creative power. I've seen him heal. I know he has delivering power. I've seen demons. What do I know about him? I'm a follower of Jesus. I know everything about him. You know what they knew about him? Almost nothing. They had partaken of the crumbs from his table. He dropped a crumb off and fed a multitude with a boy's lunch, up to 30,000 of them, 5,000 men, then women, then children. He dropped a crumb from the master's table. You know what the crumb was dropped for? As an invitation to the master's feast. And here they are, all satisfied with crumb hunting. You know, all satisfied with crumb feasting. And he's saying, I want to bring you to the master's feast. What do they know about Jesus? Almost nothing. But I'm positive. They told their friends how much they knew about him. Where are you in all of this today? What are you following Jesus for? Do you think you've learned just about everything about him? Have you got it wired? And now you're just honing in on the certain thing that you want from him? And you're deaf to everything else God's trying to say to you? Boy, it happens. It happens. It happened in my life. And God used this passage to free me right out of it. So yes, Jesus uses earthly needs to draw you to him. But don't miss the point once he's got your attention. They were seeking him for the wrong reasons. The next thing he said to them was, You are existing on the lowest level of life. Verses 26 and 27. He said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for food which endures to everlasting life. What is he saying? He's saying, you people, you are spending all the energy in your life for mere physical satisfaction, mere physical gratification. You're trying to find satisfaction on a physical level and you're never going to find it. You are laboring on that level. That's the lowest level of life. That's the animal level of life. The thing that separates us as men, human beings, from animals is the fact that we can know God personally. I know that some of you think your little dogs know Him and so you dress them up in sweaters and stuff and drive around with them, you know, and put Jesus stickers on their dog houses and things, but in reality, to live only to gratify physical needs is to live on an animal type existence. It's the lowest level of existence. Even if you rise to the highest level of that existence, you're still living on life's lowest level. So, you find them seeking satisfaction in the wrong places. They thought, well, if we could just get him to throw out the Romans, we would be satisfied with that. He would rule. We would be then ruling ourselves. That'd be very satisfying. Besides, we'll swing a deal with him. We'll get free bread and stuff for 40 years. It'll be the greatest thing to ever happen to us as a nation. But you see, you end up always wanting more. Always wanting more when you live to satisfy the needs of the flesh alone to the exclusion of a relationship with God. It's empty. You know why? What happens is this. God created man in his own image. God created man for fellowship with him. Man fell in rebellion to God in the garden. He fell out of fellowship with God. He literally ripped that part of his life 
out of him, leaving a, an empty void inside, as some have called it, a God-shaped void. Only God can fill that. Well, when God was ripped out of their lives and their life found its truest meaning, being created in the image of God and for fellowship with God, when life lost its truest meaning, leaving this empty void, then mankind, outside of Jesus Christ now, spends his whole life, each and every man and woman, spend their whole life seeking to respond to that deep inner craving and hunger that can only be satisfied by God. And what happens is as that hunger rises out through your being and surfaces to your brain and your emotions and your links up with your body appetites and all of that, then you, you go through life trying to fill that void from the outside in and that becomes a quest of physical gratification and fulfillment. And what happens is the problem is this. That sets you up for all kinds of pursuits in life that become obsessive. We face the temptation, for example, here in America of materialism. It's something that is all around us. I think it takes a miracle to live in this world today and not be a materialist, especially in Southern California. It's forced on us. It's forced on us. And I would have to agree with A.W. Tozer, who once said, No Oriental monarch ever ruled his cowering subjects with any more cruel tyranny than things. Things. He said, visible things, audible things, tangible things, but things rule mankind. You know what um, Augustine said once? or it was Chrysostom, he said, men are nailed to the things of this life. You're nailed to them. Outside of Christ, you can't get away from them. It's, it's not possible because, you see, here's this great vacuum that's sucking things into your life, really into this hole that only God can fill. In the face of materialism, which rules you like a tyrant, worse than any tyrant that ever sat on a throne, it's a temptation you almost cannot deny without Christ filling that part of your life. Thomas Manton said, There is not a vice which more effectually contracts and deadens the feelings, which more completely makes a man's affections the center of himself and excludes all others around him from partaking of his affections. There's nothing worse than the vice, really, of materialism, the desire of accumulating things in this life, whether it be things like power, success, material possession, the house on the hill, whatever, 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 the dream life. We call it in America the American dream. In some ways, it's not a bad thing to have a free family and provide for them well. That's not a bad American dream. But the American dream seems to have turned into the American nightmare of materialism and drugs and the pursuit of immorality and the pursuit of perversion and endless molestation. It's just on and on and on. You see all this filth rushing into the God-shaped void. And what happens is if you escape immorality, you get caught in the materialism. You escape the materialism, you get caught in the ego thing. I mean, it, it's one thing to the next. You escape one, you're trapped by another. You see, the problem is the abundance 
of material and physical things never leads to satisfaction. And along the way, if you do get wealth, if you do have means, if you have money, even if only for a time, you're able to get more things to try more desperately to satisfy that inner craving, which is really spiritual and you don't even know it. And with the ability to get more things comes a greater frustration. Because the more things you try, the more you're frustrated because they don't satisfy. And the pace quickens and the effort is heightened. And as a result, you become this frustrated, empty individual. And you are the center of your life. And you end up just in a feverish pursuit. I read about the Roman society around the time of A.D. 60 near the time of our reading here in this scripture today. And the luxury of the Roman society for the wealthy people was unparalleled. It was at this time that they served, get this, this would be a nice meal for wealthy people, feasts of peacock's brains. Now that would take a lot of little peacock brains, you know, to have a peacock brain feast. If that isn't a massive effort, I don't know what is. And nightingale's tongues. I stopped today, when I, that's as far as I got when I read that. I thought, how many dump truck loads of nightingale tongues would you need to have a nightingale tongue feast for many people, say a hundred people? Can you imagine how many nightingales would have to die flung off in a corner with their tongue ripped out? I'll stop. But they then cultivated the odd habit of taking emetics between courses so that the next course might taste better. And meals, at that time, it was not unusual to have them cost thousands of dollars for a meal of this type, all in a quest to find satisfaction and fulfillment in things. It was at this time that Pliny, this historian, tells of a Roman lady who was married in a robe so richly jeweled and gilded that it cost the equivalent of over half a million dollars. Over half a million dollars. And the reason was for all this, a deep dissatisfaction with life and a hunger that nothing could satisfy. They would try anything for a new thrill because they were both appallingly rich and appallingly hungry outside of Christ. To be appallingly rich is to be appallingly hungry and to have the necessary means to continue to try to satisfy that hunger. And that is why you have the Hollywood tabloids. Right? And it's endless because they have the money to endlessly try to feed that hunger. And it is a never-ending frustration. It is an appalling hunger that possesses your life and in the end ruins your life. To live outside of Christ to satisfy physical need is to live on the lowest level of life. I like what Thomas Fuller said. He said, Contentment consists not in adding more fuel, but in taking away some fire. Not in multiplying of wealth, but in subtracting of men's desires. It took me a while to figure out what he was saying, but I think I've got it. That... The idea is to add more fuel to the fire. The idea is to take away some of the fire that consumes your life. In other words, 
as you come to Christ, as you follow him for the right reason of knowing him, and then he can do whatever he wants to do in providing things in your life, as you live for that, and he begins to satisfy you by filling that God-shaped empty void inside, he begins to simplify your desires because as you become more and more truly satisfied and content in him, there are less and less random temptations that can sweep your life away because what do you, what do you tempt a contented man with? You understand? Life becomes much more simpler. But what do you tempt someone that has an appalling hunger for physical things? What do you tempt them with? Anything you like. And they'll diversify anything you give to them and turn it into more things. And in the end, you have multiplied, diversified, perversified desires and hungers. So walking with Christ, being satisfied in Christ, simplifies a man's life, eliminates many desires that were there before, and brings the desires down into the channels and running on the tracks that God created them to run on. And you have a simplified life that becomes a satisfying life that's satisfied with God fulfilling the soul that he created. Only Jesus can simplify your desires and bring true satisfaction to your soul. And he can only do that if you'll follow him for the right reasons. What is Jesus saying to these people? He's saying, you're seeking me for the wrong reasons and you're existing on the lowest level. Then he says this to them. You are also, however, hearing exactly what you need to change. In other words, he begins to say to them by bringing up the bread issue. I have come to completely meet the needs of your soul. I think we all need to hear that today. New. I have come to completely meet the needs of your soul. And he gives them some things that they need to pay attention to and work on. First of all, he says to them in verse 27 that this, he says, what you need to do if you want to change is this. You need to labor for satisfaction in God. You've been applying all this effort to finding your fulfillment in physical things. You need to take that same effort, direct it toward God. And then you will find what you're looking for. So his advice is this, turn away from those things that don't satisfy. Look at verse 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes. Stop. About face, go in the other direction. Quit living your life and expending all your energy for things that don't satisfy. Now, we are all different, all of us. I thank God we have a unique Savior because we have unique needs in a sense. In a sense, we're also all alike. But you know in your mind, those empty pursuits that can consume you if you allow them to, you must turn away from them, and so must I, and labor to find my satisfaction in God. He says, do not labor for the food that perishes. And let somebody go out of here and make the most ridiculous conclusion, and you get this, that somebody is going to go home, some guy, and tell his wife, God said it's okay if I quit my job. It happens. So for you, whoever you are, I'm looking all around, but I don't know who you are. Jesus is not saying don't work hard to provide well to all of those of us that work. He's not saying that. He's saying quit working for these things that don't satisfy you. Your labor in life to satisfy yourself. Everything we've been saying. Then he says this. Turn away from the things that don't satisfy and make every effort 
to receive the life that God has to give you. Labor for food that endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set a seal on him. That is the gospel. That is the good news. The Son of Man will give you. So you make every effort to receive the life God has for you. I'm surrounded by deception to take me away from this. So are you. So I have to make an effort to fight back. I read today about the famous opera singer Jenny Lind. And she always created a profound impression on her audiences and she attained a widely acclaimed success. But a strange thing happened at the very height of her career. She suddenly dropped out of public life and entertainment. She left the stage. You know what she did? She began to use her talents and her energy for charitable causes. From stardom on the stage in opera to living her life out in charitable causes. She made a radical change. So when she was asked the reason, you know what she did? She took her Bible that was laying open on her knees and she touched it. And she said, you know, I'll tell you why. My busy life left me so little time for this. My Bible, my communion with God here. Studying the truth, finding the truth that makes me free. And then she said, and not only did it leave me little time for this. She turned and the sun was going down. It was a beautiful sunset. And she said, it left me no time for that. See, she was saying, I found that the, the greatest success I had ever achieved in life became, in a sense, the point of my greatest failure because it took me away from the only source of ever finding real fulfillment in life. I was missing out on the truth which alone can make me free. I was missing out on the communion that I have with God around that truth. And then I was missing out on simply enjoying all the wonderful works of God that He has on display for us in this life to bless us and to thrill us. That's why she dropped out. She said, I was being robbed of the most important things in my life. And then it wasn't that she was lazy. She found another line of work helping people in a charitable cause. That isn't to say that everybody needs to quit their job. It is to say this, you take a hard look at what you do in life. And if you need to find something else to do that would arrange your life so you can know God, which is the most important of all things, then you go about to do it. So if you're a bartender and an alcoholic at the same time, <laughs> it's a bad combination, isn't it? You've got a great hunger and a great supply. Then you quit your job, you get out of there. I mean, we could go on with those kind of illustrations. So you turn away from the things that don't satisfy. You make every effort to receive the life that God has to give you. And then, as you labor for the food that endures to everlasting life, you make very sure that you're focusing on the last part, everlasting life. You become keenly aware this life will end. And a part of your labor becomes preparing for your departure. That whatever else you do in life, you are spending effort and energy to prepare for death. So that when it comes your time to depart, you've made every single arrangement. It's all covered. You will go out well. I read about a guy who was... Everything we've been talking about without the end. In terms of effort, preparation. All of us need to make specific plans for departure from this life. 
Because if we don't, we can be left in a predicament similar to this young man. He became stranded in an Alaskan wilderness. Here's how it happened. His adventure began in the spring of 1981 when he was flown into the desolate north country of Alaska to photograph the natural beauty of the mysteries of the tundra. He had photo equipment, 500 rolls of film, several firearms, 1,400 pounds of provisions. He had every provision for his life there. But as the months passed, the entries in his diary, which at first detailed his wonder and fascination with the wildlife around him, began to turn into a pathetic record of a nightmare. As he began to realize he had made no provision for his departure out, every provision to get in, every provision to be there, but no provision to leave. And there he was alone in August. He wrote, I think I should have used more foresight about arranging my departure. I'll soon find out. He waited and he waited, but no one came to his rescue. In November, he died in a nameless valley by a nameless lake, 225 miles northeast of Fairbanks. An investigation revealed that he had carefully mapped out his venture, but had made no provision to be flown out of the area. What provision are you making to be flown out of the area? You see, the odds of you dying are very great. <laughs> Every one of you will die. What provision are you making for it? It's something that occupies my mind more and more. You make provision for it how? By laboring for the bread that endures to everlasting life. By cultivating your relationship with Jesus Christ. So he says, labor for your satisfaction and in God. And the next thing he says here is you do that by believing on Jesus Christ as the Savior from God. And that includes everything he said about himself, everything God says about him, identifying all the seals and proofs that God has put on his life as you read about him in the Bible, fulfilled prophecy, miracles, uh, dying for your sin on the cross, raising again from the dead, appearing, disappearing, teaching, teaching, teaching for 40 days, finally ascending up into heaven. And this same Jesus that went up into heaven like this, the angel said to the people watching, will so come again in like manner. What are you doing standing around staring into the sky? Get to work. That's what they said to the disciples who were watching. You understand that you believe on Christ as the Savior from God and you begin to move in on Him with all these things in mind that God has shown about Him and you take Him as He is and you follow Him on His terms and you follow Him for the right reasons that He has revealed and you don't go through your life following Him in the wrong way. He says that. He says, Labor, in verse 27, not for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal to Him. God has sealed Him in all the ways I just mentioned, throughout His life, even before His life. God has sealed Him as the One that can save you and bring true fulfillment to your life by fellowship with Him. God has sealed Him and God asks for you to believe on Him. Notice, on Him whom He sent. God has sent no other Savior. Notice He said on Him. He didn't say on them. He didn't say, whatever you do, find the way to God and believe on one of them whom He has sent whether it be Confucius, Mohammed, whatever. There are endless paths to God. You pick your own. 
Just like a wheel, you know, young grasshopper, there are many spokes that lead to the center. So you pick your own way, and if you're sincere, you'll find God in the end. No, he didn't say that because it's a lie, it's not true. He said, God has sealed him, him, not them, him, whom he has sent. God has only sent one Savior. What does it mean to believe on him? As he says to do here, it means, I'll tell you a lot more than just believing about him. The people that came and said, when did you arrive here? We want more bread. They believed about him, a lot of things. And it's certainly not believing about him, things that aren't true of him. And it is certainly something that would involve believing everything he ever said about himself. It's certainly something that would involve believing everything the Old Testament says about him. It's certainly that it would involve everything God said about him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And it's certainly more than that. To believe on Christ is to take everything that's true of him as he is revealed in the Bible and accept all those facts and then do something about it and what you do to believe on him is this you take the whole weight of your life and you are eternal all of you you take the whole weight of your life and you rest it in his hands you take all your sin all your failures all your rebellion to God and you bring it to him you take your desperate need to be forgiven and you bring it to Him. You take your desperate need to be sustained in the midst of endless temptation here and you bring it to Him. You take your desperate need to have a place waiting for you when you die because you've never been there. And you will go there and you bring it to Him. So when Jesus says that you believe on Him whom He has sent, it is all of that. It is taking the weight of your whole life and putting it on Him it is to trust in Him, to cling to Him, and to rely on Him in the fullest sense. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, so well. He said, upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. Upon a God I cannot see. I place my whole eternity. That's what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Have you placed your trust in Him? Are you following Him for the right reasons? Because you know you need this salvation only He can bring, this forgiveness only He can bring. Jesus is saying to the people there in Capernaum, you are hearing what you need to change. Labor to find your satisfaction in God. Believe on Jesus Christ as the Savior from God. And then He effectively says, then let me show you how I am the true bread from heaven as I bring you the abundant life that you really do crave. You just don't know how to get there. You've been trying the wrong way. He says effectively, don't try to follow your own way. And we see that. Look at verse 30. I'm appalled at this. Verse 30. Therefore they said to him, all right, we've touched on this. What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? You want us to do this work? Our fathers ate man in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat, trying to manipulate him, still wanting to meet, notice their needs as they felt them. They haven't budged an inch from where they were when they came in and said, when did you come here? They haven't moved one inch in their understanding, still blinded by their pursuit to meet their own needs as they sense them, not to release and allow him to meet their needs as he sees them. He has demonstrated his ability to see to the depths of their heart by telling them that they're following him for the wrong reasons. 
And so you have to follow Jesus His way, not your way. And He said, Most assuredly, verse 32, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's saying, I know your deepest needs. Let me show you. I can satisfy them. I am the true bread from heaven. He alone can give a truly satisfying life. I love the way that Jesus, throughout his preaching, effectively says, I will meet your need, and I will manifest myself to you in your greatest need, and I will do it in different ways throughout your life, but my focus will always be the highest level of life, not the lowest level. The highest level will be taken care of first, and then eventually we'll take care of the lower levels. Seek first, Jesus said, the kingdom of God. And all these other things that you worry about, what to eat, what to put on, these low-level things of life, I'll provide for those too. As you seek me for the right reasons first, as you seek me for me. I think it was Augustine who said, very few people seek Jesus for Jesus. That is a very convicting statement to me. Very convicting. I've heard so many pastors say, you know, I don't think I'm called to the pastorate, but I don't know what other kind of job I could get if I left, so I'm still here. You'd be horrified if I told you who they were. It's nobody good that you know. <laughs> I'd say, it's not Greg Laurie, it's not Chuck Smith, it's not Raul Reese. You know, okay? Did I lower your anxiety level on that? What if it's Greg? Listen, all those guys have the abundant proof in their life they are called. It's the ones that don't have the proof that they're called. Those are the ones that generally run the risk of following Jesus only for the stuff after many years. God help us. I love what Jesus says, you know, in the Gospel of John, as he reveals his ability to meet need. Here he says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Do you need light in your life? I'm the light. If you need good guidance and good care and protection and warmth and love, I'm the good shepherd, he says in chapter 10. Do you need to have a brand new life, a new beginning? I'm the resurrection and the life. He says that in chapter 11. Do you need direction? Do you need a, a way to go in life? Do you need security and knowing you're moving in the right way? I'm the way. Do you want to know the truth as opposed to falsehood? I'm the truth. Do you want to have abundance? I am the life. I can satisfy you within. If you want to feel secure, if you want to get in a place in life where you begin to flourish and bear lots of fruit, and you feel like you have a meaningful, productive life, know this, I'm the vine. He said that in chapter 15. You want somebody over you in authority to be the hero and the one in life to follow? He said in John 18, I am a king. He's everything we need, absolutely everything we need. But he doesn't become that to us. He doesn't become the true bread of heaven to us to bring true satisfaction and fulfillment until we follow him for the right reasons. And until we do, we can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are the bread of life. Do you have everything we need for life? Lord, open our eyes. Bless us, Lord, with inward strength to turn, to turn away from following those things that do not satisfy. 
to find our hearts warmed in the midst of our struggles and blessed and our will changed. Turn away from those things to embrace you, Lord, the only one who can satisfy and to find all the other needs that we have in life met as well along the way. Simplify our desires with the satisfaction that only you can bring. And we will bless you and praise you for it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.